A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the battlefront, hear the news from the EU Council meeting in Brussels, and we interview a former Apache attack helicopter pilot. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 27th of October, 2023. One year and 245 days since the full-scale invasion began. Joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, Brussels Correspondent Joe Barnes speaking live from the EU Council meeting in Brussels, and our guest is Richard Youngs, former Apache attack helicopter pilot and instructor in the British Army's Army Air Corps. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from the battlefront. Sure. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start in uh, Avdivka. And Ukraine's Tavrisk Group of Forces spokesperson, Colonel Alexander Stupin, he said yesterday that Russian forces have suffered 5,000 personnel killed and wounded and 400 armoured vehicles lost near Avdivka and Marinka. Marinka is just southwest of Donetsk City in the last two weeks. Now, we've been talking about these numbers for a few days now. I think that 400 of the armoured vehicles lost there. That seems a bit toppy to me. That might be an account of all vehicles. Many possibly had armour bolted on, for example, but trucks wouldn't be usually counted as an armoured vehicle. So armoured vehicles we normally would normally be the family of tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, armoured personnel carriers, battle taxis, effectively, and specialist engineering vehicles and that kind of thing. So we report these numbers, but obviously uh, we do make make pains to try and verify them where we can and, and flag where we're not entirely sure. But it's still a, a staggering amount, whatever the, the figure is, a huge amount of forces, Russian forces being lost in Avdivka. Now, a Ukrainian reserve officer stated that Russian forces appear to be using fewer armoured vehicles in the fight, although they may now be regrouping for a renewed mechanised assault as they did between the initial mechanised assaults from October 10th to the second series of large such vehicle-borne assaults around October 19th, 20th. So they might be trying to regroup. It's thought that the Russian command has funnelled additional forces to the, the front there, Avdivka, to offset these manpower and equipment losses and maintain or try to maintain their military's ability to keep going, try and maintain the momentum. It's worth noting that the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, they are saying that Russian command will likely struggle to offset the equipment losses that they've suffered in the last few weeks, particularly in armoured vehicles. They say widespread Russian losses in the first half of the of last year, the first half of the full-scale invasion, this is in particular for the vehicles, they say that heavily restricted Russia's ability to conduct effective mechanised manoeuvre warfare over last winter to spring this year, and they suffered 
and that that's just been knocked on since then the, the subsequent forces have suffered from low combat effectiveness now i just want to pause for a moment and have a quick word on what we mean by combat effectiveness so each unit a battalion a brigade division what have you is said to be at let's say 100% combat effectiveness on day 1 when they're deployed they're fully fully rested the vehicles are working they've got ammunition water fuel etc etc so 100% Anything lower than about 70% combat effectiveness is deemed unworkable compared to what that grouping should be capable of. So, for example, let's take a brigade of around 5,000 soldiers that consists, for this example, four battalions plus all the supporting elements. If it was at 70% combat effectiveness, it couldn't be expected to achieve the kind of missions that a full-strength brigade should be able to. Now, it's not an exact science, but it's a guide for military planners. So if you're a military planner and you've got 15th Leningrad Brigade, for example, and that you're told that's at 70% combat effectiveness, you need to give it a slightly smaller task than you would ordinarily have given it on day one of the war because it's, it's just going to get smashed up even more. Now, that's not saying that a, a brigade of 5,000 people, if it's at 70%, that's still... Uh, carry the five three and a half thousand russians with guns so yeah that's still a capable force but if you give it a task that is meant for for a a force of five thousand you're just asking for trouble and isw are saying that that's what russia has been doing and they've continued to give company battalion brigade tasks and so on to formations that, that aren't at that strength with predictable results so back to the equipment losses last year they um, are thought to have contributed to, to they've rolled on to further losses in the, the assaults near Vuladar uh, and, and elsewhere in Donetsk Oblast earlier this year and then heavy losses around Vuladar likely prevented Russia from committing sustained mechanised assaults elsewhere and so on and so on and so on up to today when we see the losses around Avdivka that, that, that seem to be much larger than anything we've seen earlier for, for specific battles. So perhaps that link between what pl- the planning guidelines are, and Russia will have the same, they'll have some, some, well, they should have some idea of these guidelines, of what a brigade can do, what a division can do. But maybe that link between the, the guidelines and the reality on the ground in terms of serviceable equipment and, and available personnel might be broken. Now, ISW is saying it remains unclear if the prospect of further heavy equipment losses will deter Russia from from keeping going in Avdivka, but you know we will watch this closely. But it, it is, it, it, I mean, it's a fundamental planning failure. If you are giving tasks to to formations that aren't there or just are not up to it, then you're gonna you're gonna you're just going to sustain losses. And if you keep doubling down, that only ends ends one way. Now, linked to Avdivka, the White House has said the Russian military is executing soldiers who do not follow orders. So this came from John Kirby, who's an occasional spokesperson for the White House. He's, he's actually the National Security Council spokesperson. I interviewed him when we, when we were out in the States a few weeks ago. He said, we have information that the Russian military has been actually executing soldiers who refuse to follow orders. We also have information that Russian commanders are threatening to execute entire units if they seek to retreat from Ukrainian artillery fire. He said this was barbaric and said Russia's mobilised forces were under-trained, under-equipped and unprepared for combat. He said the military was using human wave tactics by throwing groups of poorly trained soldiers into the fight. And then he, he added, I think it's a symptom of how poorly Russia's military leaders know they're doing and how bad they have handled this from a military perspective. Okay, next one. Missile and drone strikes continued across Ukraine last night. Injuries reported in Izium, that's up in the Kharkiv region, no reported deaths there. Two waves of drone attacks in the southern areas of Mykolaiv and Hezon. A uh, lot of infrastructure damage, but no, no uh, casualties, no deaths as far as I can, I can make out. And then just finally, there has been some some chat recently about grain shipments and what's happening in the Black Sea. Comments that Ukraine's actually at a very healthy rate of of being able to get the grain out. But in the last few days, there has been some confusion about these shipping corridors. Ukrainian officials have denied reports that they have suspended a corridor for civilian vessels in the Black Sea over the last couple of days. Reuters reported that a British security firm called Ombre and a Ukrainian consulting firm called Bava Invest, as well as a specialised Ukrainian news outlet called Ukrainian Ports, had said that Ukraine had temporarily suspended traffic through the, the grain corridor this week. 
Barber-Invest stated that Ukrainian Seaports Administration announced the suspension on the evening of October 25th and that a de facto suspension had been in place for about two days then anyway. But Ukrainian Southern Operational Command spokesperson Natalia Hermanyuk, she said that many factors, including threats from Russia and weather, affect the Ukrainian military's decisions to allow individual civilian vessels to pass through the corridor. And then following up with that, Ukraine's Ministry of Reconstruction and the Ukrainian Minister for Communities, Territories and Infrastructure Development, a chap called Alexander Kubrakov, we uh, mentioned him before, he later clarified reports and said the reports about the suspension are false and that civilian vessels are using all available routes established by the Ukrainian Navy. So it sounds like the, the, the grain transfer is, is back on. And I'll take a pause there, David. Thank you very much, Dom. Let's go then to Francis Durnley. What have you been looking at over the past 24 hours? Well, thanks, David. Yes, some major, major developments in the realm of geopolitics since our broadcast yesterday with significant implications for the war in Ukraine and the escalating conflict in the Middle East as Putin seeks to intervene in the Israel-Gaza crisis by inviting senior Hamas and Iranian leaders to Moscow. So yesterday, Russian officials met with Hamas, who praised them for taking an active role in the war and released several pictures of the meeting between Russian officials, Hamas and Iran's deputy foreign minister. It has led to a wave of condemnation by many Western-leaning countries. Israel has called it an obscene step that gives support to terrorism and legitimises the atrocities of Hamas terrorists. Some are going further and have asked whether it shows Russia is forming an axis of terror with Hamas, mediated by Iran, which already, of course, supplies Moscow with drones for its war in Ukraine. Frankly, I'm shocked that people are shocked by this development. As we've been discussing on the podcast ever since the attacks, all evidence seemed to suggest that Putin was willing to abandon his long-standing relationship with Israel in favour of closer ties with Iran and its Islamist allies, who carried out the terror attacks on Israel and have stepped up a bombing campaign on American troops in the wider Middle East. It's designed to show the global... Muslim community, Arab states, that Russia is on their side, something that offers him numerous benefits in terms of international leverage and applying domestic pressure and distraction within many Western countries. The Foreign Desk asked me to write a piece on all this, which we've just published on our website, where I argue that Putin's humanitarian interventions, and I say that very much in inverted commas, over events in the Middle East is and has to be understood as a cold-blooded calculation. Try telling the child of a parent killed in one of the thousands of Russian bombardments in Ukraine that the Kremlin believes innocent people, including women and children, should not be punished for other people's crimes, which Putin claims is his motivation for these talks. In truth, in the unscrupulous world of geopolitics, the crisis in the Middle East is too good an opportunity for Moscow to miss. For the first time in almost two years, as we've discussed on the podcast, international attention, at least in the West, has shifted away from the Kremlin's disastrous special operation in Ukraine, offering Putin a leg up back onto the world stage. But it's not just Moscow that stands to benefit from this. So does China, who are all too eager to rally Arab nations and African countries, who are, of course, more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, to its side. Hence why Moscow and Beijing just used their vetoes to block a US-drafted UN Security Council resolution condemning Hamas and expressing support for Israel's right to self-defence. All of this offers the opportunity to drive a wedge between Western allies. The EU 27 member states have long been split between more pro-Palestinian members such as Ireland and Spain and staunch backers of Israel, including Germany and Austria. Where you have division and distraction here, the thinking will be that this will bleed into discussions about support for Kyiv, which is, of course, extremely valuable to Moscow at present. But if Moscow and Beijing think that they will only stand to benefit from this crisis, they may be in for a shock. Russia took advantage of Western hesitancy to engage in Syria, boosting its profile in the region many years ago. Any influence it has wielded there will be imperiled if America and its allies decide to return to the region, which they seem set to do 
to varying degrees already following the US deployment of an additional 900 troops to bolster air defences and the aircraft carriers that are on their way there, as well as British ships and other Western countries' uh, ships too. US troops have been attacked at least 12 times in Iraq and four times in Syria in the past week by Iran-backed groups in the region. On Thursday, and this is really significant, the Pentagon confirmed that 19 US troops had suffered traumatic brain injuries from those attacks. These are what many would consider quite serious escalations, and so just consider all of that in the context of the conversations we're having today in the Ukraine context. This, this in, in some degrees has become even bigger than, than, than that, despite the parallels I'm just talking about. It may also, of course, have the unintended consequence of turning Ukraine sceptic but fiercely pro-Israel Republicans against Moscow if Russia is seen as falling under that new access I just described, including Iran and Hamas. Already, interestingly, in the region itself, a number of Israeli politicians have called for Prime Minister Netanyahu to back Kyiv more strongly than it has. And we've discussed at length this week some of the parallels that have been made between what's going on in the Middle East, for right or wrong, by President Biden and President Zelensky and others. For now, however, leveraging the conflict offers more advantages than disadvantages for both President Putin and Xi. It will drive a wedge, as I say, between Western countries and those Russia and China seek to court, as well as offering much-needed distractions from Putin's bloody war in Ukraine and Xi's probing of Taiwan. Such a wedge, even one measured in human lives, is perceived as worth the risk. Thank you very much, Francis Durnley. Joe Barnes, can I come to you? You're on the ground in Brussels. It's the second day of the EU's council meeting. You spoke to us yesterday from the same place. What's changed? What have been the most uh, important developments that you've seen? Okay, so when we spoke yesterday at the same time, the summit hadn't really started. But now, yesterday, uh, President Zelensky has given his speech. EU leaders are currently debating how they address Ukraine at the moment. So let's touch on what President Zelensky first told the European leaders yesterday. I spoke to a diplomat who was in the room for the address, and he described it as a greatest hits moment. The speech touched on Kyiv's EU membership ambitions, its requests for weapons, its partnerships to boost Ukraine's domestic arms industry, a 12th round of EU sanctions, Zelensky's 10-point peace plan, and finally a planned peace summit in Malta. So Zelensky first opened with a fact that he had recently passed a law on the financial financial monitoring of, and this is in quotations, politically exposed persons. This is particularly important because it's essentially Ukraine's effort to crack down on corruption to make it a country that is basically worthy of becoming a, a member state of the EU at some point. And we know that Zelensky will probably be back in Brussels in December as there will be a decision on whether Ukraine will be allowed to start its formal membership talks rather than just being a potential candidate country. And then he went on to stress the importance of air defence systems. He said air defence is for life. And he, he pointed out that drones have been shot down near, oh, the, sorry, the name of the power plant sips out of my head, but a nuclear power plant that Russia had fired drones at. And he said, luckily, that Ukraine's air defences managed to shoot them down, but it could have been catastrophic. On sanctions, he raised the issue of circumvention. That's when people or governments uh help Russia to avoid the sanctions that have been placed on them. He said it was for the EU, the G7 and G20, to work closely together to close down those loopholes that Russia's exploiting to get, whether it be like sort of Western computer chips or components or even access to the Western financial markets, for instance. Um, so he, he, he stressed that while asking the EU to continue on its path to brokering a 12th round of sanctions on Vladimir Putin and his sort of government, his close allies and various things that he uses to fuel his war machine in Ukraine. Zelensky then went on to mention his 10-point peace plan. We've reported on that quite a lot, so I won't go into detail on that. Um, but he did then mention what has become quite a growing peace movement when national security advisers are due to meet in Malta shortly, I think this weekend. So I expect Tim Barrow, Britain's national security advisor, will be there at the meeting. There's expected to be 70 nations in total represented at the summit. Uh, that's according to Zelensky's advisors, which is quite exceptional in real terms, because when that 
this format of meeting met for the first time in Copenhagen. 15 countries turned up. Jeddah it was 40, I think 43 to be be precise and now it's grown to 70 and it's, it's got like china involved it's got saudi arabia it's this kind of this idea of like the global south the countries that have either that, that have been not that haven't criticized russia as much as sort of western governments would have liked to have done and maybe almost let russia off the hook so it's winning round those governments that are slightly more while while they don't it's unfair to say they completely back vladimir putin's invasion but they're sort of agnostic to it and don't really mind then away from Zelensky. There was quite an entertaining moment, various entertaining moments, you could say, on the EU's Ukrainian bogeyman, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister. He's renowned for having close relations with with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. He's He stands in the way of uh, holding up various EU aid packages for Ukraine, whether it be financial assistance or weapons assistance. And as we've reported recently, he was pictured with Vladimir Putin shaking his hand. And I think that is the first time that a... Western leader has been pictured with Vladimir Putin since February 23rd last year, shaking his hand. We know there's been sort of Emmanuel Macron moments at the end of the table and various leaders going to see Putin in a bid to get him to pull out of Ukraine, uh, but there's never been a handshake. So here's what EU leaders had to say about Viktor Orban at the summit. This is Xavier Patel, Luxembourg's prime minister. He said, I have to tell you, what I said yesterday still holds true. What Orban has done with Putin is a middle finger to all soldiers, all Ukrainians that are dying every day that have to suffer from Russian attacks. The Lithuanian president, Gitanas uh, Naseida, he called Viktor Orban a flirt and said it was regrettable that he had not apologised for his warm ties with Russia. The Estonian prime minister, Kaya Kallas, she said she would personally raise the issue with Viktor Orban and said he, as in Putin, is a war criminal. He started this war of aggression against a sovereign country, being Ukraine. He deported children and an arrest warrant against Putin has been given by the ICC, that's the International Criminal Court. I wouldn't want to be in the same picture as such a guy. And then she went on to mention why Viktor Orban is playing into the hands of Russian propaganda, saying that this is benefiting the Kremlin and not the European Union. So she's, yeah, she's essentially saying that these sort of photo ops with for Vladimir Putin are great because it kind of helps him build a narrative that he's still loved, he's still got allies in the world, and, and people support his war of aggression, his full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which is, yeah, couldn't really be much further from the truth. But despite all of the complaints that we heard in Brussels, this didn't deter Viktor Orban. He said he was proud of his strategy of maintaining cosy relations with Russia. He said, we keep open all communication lines with the Russians. We're proud to do it. We're the ones speaking on behalf of peace. That's what Victor Orban said. Uh, that, yeah, that's a, a decide if you want to decide on that. And then he said, the spirit of Europe is with me. Um, and as I said, U- European leaders are still talking through the, um, the uh, sort of draft conclusions. They might have finished by now. They're still talking through what is going to be said by European leaders about Ukraine. I've got a draft version of the statement they're currently discussing, and I'll take you for a few of the points. So the European Council is going to reiterate its resolute condemnation for Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, which is said is a violation of the UN Charter, and it reaffirms the European Union's unwavering support for Ukraine's independence, sovereignty and territorial integrity. It says the European Union will continue to provide strong financial, economic, humanitarian, military and diplomatic support to Ukraine and its people for as long as it takes. And it mentions the European Union and its member states will continue to provide sustainable military support to Ukraine, notably through the European Peace Facility. That's the uh, money set aside that European member states can claim back for weapons they deliver to uh, to Ukraine. And that's they're currently discussing another 500 million euros to do so. They've I think it's about it's three and a half billion so far they've they spent. Then it uh, goes on to say that in the longer term, European Union member states will contribute with partners to future security commitments to Ukraine, uh, which will help Ukraine dis- defend itself and resist destabilization efforts and deter future acts of aggression. So the EU is going to set out a plan, a framework on what the EU can do for future security commitments. That's going to be set out at the December European Council meeting. And then there's a line saying that military support, security commitments will be provided in full respect of security and defence policy of certain member states and taking into the account of security and defence of all 
interests of all member states. So it's basically a sort of a, a hat tip to the likes of Ireland, which is military new has military neutrality. It is a nod to Viktor Orban, who doesn't want to give weapons to Ukraine. It's a nod to yes, Slovakia now with Robert Fico, who's also said he doesn't want to donate weapons or uh, back new sanctions packages. It's basically saying that, look, guys, we appreciate what you're doing, but we as EU need to do something, but we don't all have to do it together. And that's that. So I'll stop there for now. Thanks so much, Joe. Just one more question from me while you're there. What's your sense of the uh, the sort of the atmosphere on on the ground with the diplomats and politicians you're talking to and, and seeing about? I mean, do do you get the sense that there's a waning interest in the war in Ukraine, or or is it just uh, that there, there's really quite a lot on on their plates at the moment? Yeah, on, on a lot on their plates. It's it's amusing how because at, at these European summits, it's a great chance you bump into various diplomats that you've not seen in the world, and you're going like, oh, we must catch up for coffee. Let's 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 go and meet and and then i always i always laugh and go oh maybe it's going to be quieter next week and they just go yeah no don't think so so i think what you do have is you have a contrast of what people are interested in and their main priorities it's clear that ukraine is still a massive massive subject for them because uh, not only are they so engrossed in the subject they're so they everyone's thrown their hats in essentially they've they've gone all in uh, if we were to use a sort of poker analogy um but for some member states, it's more of a priority than others. So if you speak to the Easterns, the Baltics, I spoke to a Baltic diplomat yesterday, and they were saying, that, look, Ukraine is still sort of our number one topic and we really need to, like, they were saying that our, our leader is going to really push and make sure that it is a priority for leaders. We really need to carry on fighting for Ukraine and helping Ukraine as best as we can. Others will, will focus more on Israel. And you, you only have to look at Emmanuel Macron. He seems to have a lot of interests in the Middle East and that and various other countries. Germany, for instance, it calls itself in terms of, and I can't remember the German phrase, but basically Angela Merkel used to say that Germany's reason for state was the protection of Israel for various historical reasons. And that's a that's a that's language that Olaf Scholz has 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 taken on and continued with. So yeah, it's 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 really down to each member state the priorities. But Ukraine is still a massive subject and that they know not only because they're, as I said, all all in with with their support, but they're also at a stage where what happens in Ukraine still affects the financial markets in in Europe. It's the sanctions. It's how and and it's European security as well. There's always a always a feeling that Russia poses some sort of threat. So yeah, it's it's not as high up, but I, I think people are recognising as well that there has been a struggle. This sort of the the counteroffensive hasn't gained as much ground. The West doesn't have as much have as many weapons to give. It's like how do we, how do we now come to the table and continue supporting Ukraine and actually trying to find something that's going to make a real difference rather than just token gestures of support because you can. It's, it's people are starting to really look strategically. So I'd, I'd be interested to see how that plays out. And it's probably once Israel is over, hopefully soon. Then yeah, I, I expect European leaders to go all the way back to Ukraine and make it their number one topic. Thanks, Joe, there, calling in from Brussels. Let's move now to our guest. Uh, Richard Youngs is a former Apache attack helicopter pilot and instructor in the British Army's Army Air Corps. He's a veteran of combat tours in Afghanistan. And as a fellow Apache pilot, Dom, I think, will have the lion's share of this interview. Dom Nichols. Rich, hi mate, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for joining us today. I want to um, want to take you back into the cockpit, if I may. Can you just... A lot of people get in touch with the pod, and, I mean, there are some people out there who have never flown helicopters before, which for whom I have my eternal sympathy, but can you just take us back into the cockpit and just talk us through it? What's it like? What's the ergonomics like? What's it like sitting in there? Is it comfortable? How, how much space is there? Have you got maps? You're able to write stuff down? What happens if you drop a pen? Can you go to the loo? Anything like that. Can you just talk us about what's it like to sit first of all sit in an apache cockpit yeah i think it's it's pretty um i mean i guess everybody's got a view of what a cockpit is you know whether we've been on holidays and and looked at the pilots at the front of a plane i think that there's quite a lot of space actually in the in both seats of, of an apache there's there's not a lot of space certainly in the front seat you've got you've got all the the weapons and sensor systems that you're holding on to you've got multiple displays so it, it's quite cramped when you first get in and actually moving even moving your hands around the cockpit when they're not on the flying controls actually it's quite claustrophobic but you soon learn like all these things you soon learn how to adapt and make it your own so whether it's the same as a the turret of a tank you know you you kind of have your own little foibles and nuances of things that you like to do and where you like to put things but it is cramped particularly in the front seat and actually made worse by the fact that you're sitting one in front of the other normally in 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 helicopters you're sitting side by side 
And so you don't even get the sort of the human interaction um, of eye contact and body language and even the sort of the, the small things. So, yeah, it, it's pretty cramped, but actually it's air conditioned, which is fantastic. Certainly in operations in Afghanistan, having air conditioning was 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 a fantastic thing to have as a, as a, as a pilot. You've got a nice little backrest, little lumbar support. So it's, it's comfy. You know, you, you, you strap yourself in and, and it's a, as an office environment, it's, it's very, um, yeah, it, it's good to work in. Now, we always used to, um, always used to make fun of our, of our brethren back in the, in the armoured turrets. But, I mean, it has to be comfy because you're, you've got to concentrate for hours at a time and it's, it's pretty hard going, especially at night and especially with the monocle. Can you talk to us about the monocle that you have, which is a, a much smaller screen over one eye, so you effectively have to focus on one thing with, with your left eye and another thing with your right eye. Can you talk to us about the monocle and how is that even possible? Well, I, I guess everybody's got an idea of, you know, we've all watched Top Gun and, and, and looked at head-up displays and this idea of having having imagery presented to you in front of you. Well, in the Apache, actually, it's, it's as you say, it's on the monocle. So it's it's a it's like a looks like a toilet tube. It's kind of bolted to the side of the helmet, and it rests on your right cheekbone, and it it, it displays through through a glass screen. It displays all the technical flying weapon systems communications information in front of your right eye and the helmet sits inside a a kind of a a, a laser web if you like in terms of so that the aircraft can see where the helmet is looking and you bore sight your the crosshairs in the middle of, of what you can see with your right eye to a known point and that then gives the aircraft a datum point so wherever you look it can move the sensors to where you're looking but this idea of left and right eye, it's physiologically impossible. It's rather like focusing a pair of binoculars. All you do is look into the distance and you rotate the little bezel on the back of the of the monocle until everything comes into focus. And incredibly, what sounds, when you talk about it, something that is, is very unnatural, the brain makes it very natural. So what you see fused together in your brain in terms of your left eye and your right eye, you just see as one picture. And actually, after a while, it just becomes very natural. So it is a bit of a fallacy to say that one eye is looking at one thing, one eye is looking at the other. You're not. You're looking at one picture, but you're getting it from two different sources. Yeah, fallacy, fallacy, telegraph, fake news. Sorry about that. So talk about the aircraft now and aircraft operations. How vulnerable are helicopters? How big is the radar cross-section? How much punishment can they take before they fall out of the sky? That kind of thing. And what are the limitations in terms of weather, logistics, planning times, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I guess the way to answer that is... is an attack helicopter of any nature is meant to go into harm's way to deliver a weapon effect of some description. So in the same way, the, sort of the, the, the similarity of a, you're a flying tank. Well, I guess to a degree you are in your direct fire capability. But of course, y- you can't carry 50, 60 tons in the air like a main battle tank can carry on its tracks. So the only thing you can really do with a helicopter is try and embed as much redundancy as you can. So in an Apache, which weighs about 10 tonnes when it's fully laden, which is, you know, it's pretty heavy even for helicopter standards. You can't, the only thing you can armour is the armoured seats that you're sitting in. So as the, as the two pilots, you've got armoured seats, which gives you an element of ballistic protection in the way that, that standard armour would do. But it's all about redundancy. So there's two pilots. You can fly the aircraft from both seats. It's got two engines. You only need one when it's in forward flight. You can fly in one engine. All the systems weapons processors, display processors, systems, there's two of everything. And they're, they're located on different parts of, of the aircraft. So that if you take a direct in one part of the aircraft, hopefully you've got redundancy in the other. Things like it's got in the fuel tanks, it's got ballistic tolerance of the fuel tanks. They're sort of, they're, they're sealed and then they're sealed with nitrogen. There's a nitrogen inerting unit. So uh, rather than have flammable air and oxygen in there, and you've got nitrogen, which of course is inert and it, it uses pressurised air it's called the IPAS in the integrated pressurized air system. So rather like on a building site where you have long lines of, of pressurized air hoses with drills and things on the, on the end of it, the Apache uses pressurized air to power a lot of the systems hey, because it's, it's, if you get a hole in one of the there's air coming out rather than hydraulic fluid or fuel or whatever it might be. So the key message with aircraft is about redundancy and trying to have as much backup systems as you can so that if you do take take a direct hit at least you can limp home and fight another day and that's the philosophy behind it all yeah and i'm going to draw it to ukraine shortly in a moment specifically before we do that just 
broadly and i start with with the apache because it's an attack helicopter which in many ways for the planning considerations and the way to think about this stuff this is why this is what we should think about when we talk about the ka-52 alligator the russian attack helicopter but i just want to talk about attack uh, helicopters more broadly and the planning considerations but as a commander and this might not probably doesn't go for the russian side but as a commander what issues did you see in your crews regarding the psychological impacts of waging war from a comparatively safe distance it, it, it's it's a challenge and I, I think because ultimately certainly in 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 the british army the attack helicopter is there to support ground operations so you're there to provide firepower protection support surveillance to the land component to the to the soldiers on the ground and of course their war is very different from yours as i said i'm sitting in a in a in a, in a very comfy air-conditioned cockpit and and contrast that with the muck and bullets that are flying for the boys on and girls on the ground so it, it is it is very different and certainly in afghanistan you could go from long periods of doing not a lot to within the space of minutes being over the top of troops in contact providing fires and support protection so that ability to ratchet up very quickly from being either periods of rest or sleep to intense periods of focus and concentration actually is is quite a challenge actually over sustained periods of time and and even even the boys in the we used to have the the it's called the very high readiness the vhr tent in camp bastion and everybody you'll see you know with playstations and xboxes and stuff like that the boys would stop playing the sort of Call of Duty shoot 'em up games because it was all too real very often when you get in the aircraft because that's the view that you're seeing to a greater or lesser degree. And and actually, yeah, you, you kind of have to recognise the fact that it is a challenge and hence the, the whatever latest FIFA game became the most popular thing, I think. Now, just one more for me, if I may, and, and taking it down into Ukraine. So last week we saw, or maybe the week before, I can't remember now, but the suspected storm shadow strikes on Berdyansk and Luhansk airfields, which we think destroyed at least nine Russian aircraft, a mix of KA-52 attack and, and MI-8 HIP, the, the transport helicopters. But what was surprising was that they were out in the open. And I mentioned at the time that 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 you might stick them in hardened aircraft shelters or possibly even underground, some countries do. But, but I mean, how wise was that? Or, or not how wise, but, but was that an absolutely basic mistake to have aircraft just sat out on the pan that were then fragged by a, uh, albeit a very long-range precision missile that they well, they should have known was coming. But how how surprising was it that at this stage in the war they've still got aircraft out on the pan with no blast walls around them, for example? I think it is. I think it is quite surprising, given the threat, as you say, that, that there's some very sophisticated long-range weapon systems available to the Ukrainian forces, and the fact, therefore, that aircraft are at risk by being out in the open just demonstrates perhaps a, a slight naivety as to understanding what that threat really is. So, yeah, I, I, it, it does feel a little bit as if it was a little bit of poor planning or a bit of misunderstanding about what the threat is. I think certainly from a from my experience, I think, you, you, you know, aviation and air assets, but particularly aviation assets are they're, they're never high in numbers. There's never enough of them. And so the commanders on the ground will do everything they can to try and protect them and, and keep them out of harm's way until they're needed. So, yes, it does. It, it is slightly surprising. Hi, uh, Rich. Joe over in Brussels. Um, Hi, Joe. The um, One of the interesting things is, and you've, you've taught people to fly these, these helicopters, and I think uh, the Ukrainians have been using sort of attack helicopters to fly sorties, yeah, as you said, not sparingly because it's dangerous near the front line. But, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is a actual possibility and Britain is considering that, but we, I believe we're upgrading the Apache to a, a third model now. Might be even be a fourth, I can't remember. So there will there be, there could potentially be some redundancy one day and it, it could be something that Ukraine ask for. So how hard would it be to train a Ukrainian pilot who is good at flying sorties in sort of Soviet legacy gear to bring them up to a level where they'd be able to fly an Apache, like we're doing at the moment with the F-16 pilots in the Ukrainian Air Force? Uh, it's it's doable. I mean, the, funnily enough, the flying side of it is the easy part. You know, you're essentially flying a computer. So the actual physical manoeuvring around the air is, is very straightforward. It's how you then apply, integrate and fight the aircraft. So how you understand 
the weapon systems, how they integrate with the sighting systems, the defensive systems, the surveillance systems. It's all of that. So I think very often that's, that is the challenge to make sure that you can do that. But then, you know, we've got in the, uh, the Apache community, there's, there's through Boeing, there's some, some very complex and, and very realistic simulators. So you can do a lot of this, you know, on the ground in a simulator. So in the same way, as you say, that fighter pilots are being trained, uh, Ukrainian fighter pilots are being trained. I, I don't see any reason why it's not, it's not plausible. I mean, from a, to give you a, a, a benchmark to train a, a, a British pilot on the Apache can take up to sort of 18 months. So it's, it's, it's but that, that's the flying as well as then the fighting the aircraft. So it's not a quick thing, but it's certainly do, doable. Thanks for your time today, Rich. Uh, just a quick question from me. We've obviously seen a lot of footage of helicopters in this war, and I wonder whether there were any that stood out to you, any that surprised you, whether in terms of effectiveness or usage that perhaps you felt was not conventional. I'm just interested in your perspective on what we've seen in terms of helicopter usage in this war. I haven't necessarily been surprised about the types of of aircraft. I think it's probably more about how you see them being used and the way in which they're flown and operated. And and certainly for, in my experience, actually understanding your, the threat to the aircraft. So whether you're flying at height because there's a small arms, an RPG, or there's some threat that's localized to the ground, or you're in a complex air defense environment where you need to fly very low to the ground. I think it's, it's been, it's looked a little bit cumbersome in terms of how the aircraft have been operated, almost a little bit naive to the real threat and i think that's been borne out in some of the footage that we've seen so not so much the helicopters more about actually how they're being used rich can i jump in here thank you so much for this it's really interesting i just wanted to start by asking for your just potentially your broad thoughts on the air war in ukraine and in the ukraine war that we've seen so far over the past 20 months and specifically any thoughts you've had on how you've seen helicopters being employed by both sides well, I think it's it's demonstrated the the challenges of aviation in, in general terms. Clearly, they are limited in terms of resources on both sides in, in how they can utilise and deploy aviation. And there are critical capabilities. So very often it's challenging in, in terms of having a, a the effect that they, you want to have on the battlefield. So I, I think it doesn't surprise me that with the, the prevalence of drones and unmanned vehicles now that in some areas, I guess, battlefield helicopters are taking a little bit of a backseat. It, it's quite an entrenched, slow-paced operation. I think so. It, it's the, the maneuverability that you get from operating aircraft and, and aviation helicopters, particularly, is perhaps not as not as key in in the commanders' minds. I guess on on both sides, in truth. So I think, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that perhaps we haven't seen attack aviation in the way perhaps that we would view it in the West as 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 much as perhaps commands on the ground, certainly on the, on the Ukrainian side, would wish to see. Dom earlier mentioned the Russian attack helicopters, the Alligators, who've, I think, been seeing quite a bit of action down in the south. What more can you tell us about them? What was your sense of the capacity and the capability of a Russian kit when you were in the army? I think it actually summed up in one word. It was reliability. And it was traditionally the Russians had a lot of kit. But it, it goes back to Dom's earlier point about combat effectiveness is actually keeping them serviceable, and technically capable. So I think it's that's probably where the challenge will come from, is how long you sustain. I mean, helicopters by their nature are hugely labour and resource intensive to keep them fully operational. So it's probably more to do with actually how long the Russian military can sustain its own aviation operations, given the long logistic and resource footprint that's needed to, to keep them in the air. And just one more from me. Obviously, you saw service in, in Afghanistan. What would you say is quite different about this this war in your mind? And what, what would worry you most as a helicopter commander if you if you were deploying in Ukraine? What would you be looking out for? It, it's probably the unknown air defence threat. Certainly, I guess, fortunately, in Afghanistan, there was very little credible air defence capability that, that the Taliban could put forward. So very often, actually, we would... Well, the aircraft would be flying above the threat line, if you like. So, so you could almost feel slightly, slightly invulnerable to what was going on. I think, I think what will happen is, in the future, you've just got to be more, much more aware of the, of the air defence threat. And whether you see armour, there's always some form of air defence. We've seen the, the, the bounds in technology in, in drones. And so I, wherever Russia's getting its air defence capability from its partners, 
it's having the intelligence to really understand what that looks like and then adapt how you use your aviation assets to make sure that you protect yourself as best you can from from that. So I'd probably, it's around the intelligence picture around what sort of air defence, because in all other respects, you've got relative freedom to manoeuvre. It's, it, yeah, so it's the air defence side of it. And one final question, Rich. Other than Dom, who's the most famous person you've had sitting in the front seat of your Apache? I sense that's a loaded question. I was privileged enough to, to serve with Prince Harry when he went through his his, his Apache training. So that was, um, yeah, and, and, and all I can say there, he was, in the time I knew him, he was very dedicated, hugely professional, very good, in fact, well-liked, um, and a real asset to the Army Air Corps. And who was the best, him or Dom? Dom, always. There you go, Dom. Correct. Well, thank you so much, Rich. It's been really interesting hearing some of your thoughts. Let's move now to our final thoughts from all of our speakers. So, Rich, we'll come back to you right at the end. Dom or Francis, would you like to go first? Well, mine's only very brief, David. Uh, I, I know we have many listeners who tune into the American Enterprise Institute's geopolitical podcast, The Eastern Front, specialising in affairs in the Baltic to the Black Sea. The team there very generously invited me on this week for a wider discussion into the, some of the subjects we cover on Ukraine The Latest, turning points of the war, for instance, why Britain has played the role that it has in this conflict, the history of isolationism in the United States, and the mental block that prevents people from engaging with the subject of war crimes. We also talked about the decline and fall of civilizations and go into a little bit of the history of this podcast. So, If you want to hear a little bit more of an informal conversation, I would humbly point listeners in that direction. We'll be sure to add a link to the episode in the description for today's episode. Thank you very much, Francis. Now the best Apache pilot, helicopter pilot we know, Dom Nichols. Well, thanks, David. Yeah, the best one in this room anyway. I'll just say that this morning I had a great interview with Mick Ryan. I mean, the questions were average, but the answers were brilliant. So General Mick Ryan, former Australian general, we've referenced a lot and he's a really good chap to follow on Twitter. Interviewed him. The interview will be coming out on Monday's pod. But just to say just a couple of highlights from that. I thought it was very interesting. We were talking about about NATO and the support for, for Ukraine. And he was very critical. He said that NATO, there was an intellectual failure by NATO and the West, and we have to take responsibility for that. He said NATO, in terms of the combined arms fighting that that, that Ukraine was expected to sort of just do with kit, he said NATO, NATO thought, let's teach them the normal combined arms and they'll be good to go. So he was very critical of them about that. He said, what the heck's going on in Europe? The record of this war is providing just enough equipment just too late, and I don't see that changing with just enough thinking out, oh, sorry, just enough thinking just too late as well. And so some very interesting stuff there. We also talked about the Brereton review into alleged war crimes committed by Australian special forces in Afghanistan and other bits and pieces. But do keep an eye out on Monday for that interview with General McRyan. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Joe Barnes. Yeah, I'm um, just going to take it back to the uh, EU summit. And, and sort of the, the difficulty is finding agreements specifically on... Ukraine now and and the longer this drags on the slower things get and well, as Mick Ryan says in in this interview that will be published on Monday that everything happens too late anyway so we're now entering sort of a the second winter of of war third if it technically started in a winter and people are still stumped over how and what they can do to help Ukraine actually win and get over the lines is almost the sort of the defining issue for the EU to solve I just, I just think there's there's too many differences, and I think Ursula von der Leyen has has been accused of almost bullying EU member states and using Ukraine to get other things for the EU, and it's just taken maybe a bit of spark out of it because Ukraine has become an issue where people are using it for their own own benefit rather than just just actually to help the Ukrainians. So it's interesting to see how that evolves, and I think we should keep a close eye on that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dom, Francis and Joe. Rich Youngs, as our guest, would you like the very final words? Oh, well, that, that's very kind. I just think perhaps just look out as, a, as an old Apache pilot. I just uh, look forward to the future with the new uh, AH-64E helicopter that's now coming to service with the Army Air Corps and, and just yeah, wish them all the best of luck and fly safe. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.com.
www.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>